Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley-Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and just ask us. The greater the length while the greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by PROST, Exercise for Prostate Cancer, and the RS Health Penile Rehabilitation Program. PROST is a not-for-profit charity set up by myself in 2012 that aims to help men exercise during their experience with prostate cancer. If you want to know anything more about PROST, including our online service and USB product now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Hi, I'm Melissa Hadley-Barrett and I designed the Penile Rehabilitation Program to help men recover from prostate cancer. It's an online program built on decades worth of knowledge and experience and practice. It's the only one of its kind in the world and it actually works. So if you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer and want to get your penis working again as quickly as possible, and why wouldn't you, then visit penilerehabilitationprogram.com and you'll be off and running. And it only takes about 15 minutes a day. All the best with your recovery, which I promise will never be as bad as you think. November 11, 11am, 60 seconds, kids watch on the wall. In the pub, in the tab, in the cars, we remember and wonder what should we... So welcome to this week's Penis Project podcast. You may remember that back in May 2022, I sent a survey to a whole pile of you guys that are listeners and regular patients of restorative sexual health about a talk that I was going to be doing at the Perth Urology Masterclass to a, a room full of GPs or general practitioners if you're in another country. So I was able to send you the results of the survey in an email but I haven't been able to send you a copy of the talk itself. So today we've put the audio on for a podcast so you'll be able to hear what I was telling the GPs about and hopefully you'll hear that that's changed their practice in some way for the better for you guys. So we also have a video of the event um, which is in our YouTube channel which is Restorative Sexual Health Clinic on YouTube. You're welcome to watch that as well if you want to. We really hope that you enjoy today and you learn something new. And also just want to keep you in reassured that we are, Dr. Joe and myself, are constantly doing education for the public, but we're also doing a lot of education for other healthcare providers to try and make sexual health and continence health way more important and accessible to everybody. So hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Bye. Our next speaker is Melissa Hadley-Barrett, who's the director and founder of Restorative Sexual Health. She's a nurse practitioner and a sexologist and an expert in male and female sexual dysfunction, penile rehabilitation, as well as cancer-related sexual issues. She's the um, host of a podcast called The Penis Project, which has been recording subtly in the corner all day. So if you have anything to add to that, you can go over and have a chat. And... Um, no, it's a pleasure to work with you. The only disadvantage of working with Melissa is that I'm sure some patients feel like we've got a racket going on because she's related to me, but uh, different sort of Barrett. Welcome. 
Hi. So, yes, as Trent so kindly said, my name's Melissa and um, I am the um, starter of Restorative Sexual Health and there's now three of us clinicians on board and we deal with sexual health issues. Um, most of my patients, the first time they see me, say, why on earth did you do that for a job? Um, and the reason is I worked in um, rural and remote places, lots of remote communities and also in a lot of large regional centres for 21 years of my career. Um, and a lot of that was in, most of it really, was in primary care. And I saw many, many people that had sexual dysfunction and they would come in about all sorts of other problems, usually depression, relationship breakdown, and then it would come back to the fact that they had some sexual issue that they hadn't discussed. So I decided um, about seven years ago that I wanted to go back after a particular case actually when a woman came in that I had worked in emergency department when I was 21 and um, she always used to tell me on night shift, she was in her 40s, about her amazing sex life. And as a 21-year-old, I was quite disgusted that people in their 40s actually had sex. And then years later, when she was in her 60s, she came in and I was then in my 40s for a um, pap smear, now called a CST. And when I went to do it, it was very dry down there. And I was like, God, why aren't you doing something about this? And she said, oh, there's no point. My husband had his prostate removed two years ago and he hasn't even held my hand since. And she cried and she was really upset about it and I got them both in and we chatted about it and I was like, there must be some way of dealing with this, which I actually didn't know at the time. And then that led me down the path of helping them and then I just I went home one day and said to my husband, I think I want to go back to uni and study sexology, which I did. He was wrapped actually. It's the first time I went back to uni. I've been back to uni a lot of times, but it was the first time he was actually happy about it because he couldn't wait to tell his mates that he was married to a sexologist rather than a nurse. <laughs> So that's how I ended up where I was, um, where I am today. And yes, most patients actually ask me if I'm Trent's mother, which is quite insulting, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so that little guy on the left is Jeffrey. This is the real Jeffrey. Um, he's my son. My 24-year-old son tells me that he's intimidating and I need to get a smaller one, but that kind of adds to the fun of it. Um, it's Jeffrey with a G, not a J, so it's not not um, named after the Jeffrey that we see today. <laughs> so what I want to talk to you about today is how to bring up the conversation of sex in general practice. And it's, I know it's difficult and I've worked in general practice. Up until Christmas this year, I was still doing a day a week in general practice. And even though my other four days a week was in this area, it was really hard with the time constraints. And I totally understand that. So please don't be offended by anything I say today. I know that you're all really time poor. And I think the point is, is if you can just feel comfortable enough to bring up the subject and then they need some help, then you can just refer them to someone who can talk to them for an hour or however long they need. So sex and intimacy is really important. It's important for men and women, for, um, for our quality of life and all the genders in between. It's important for our relationships. It's important for our mental health and it's really important for our physical health. When we have sex or an intimate um, contact with someone else, or even with ourselves, we get a lot of healthy, happy endorphins and hormones released which make us feel better about life. And interestingly enough that um, the World Health Organisation quite a few years back now put sexual health and wellbeing on the same list as food, water and shelter. So I think if it's good enough for the World Health Organisation, it should be good enough for us to talk about. It's really, really common. Oh, on this slide you'll see Veronica. Veronica is Geoffrey's friend. Jeffrey also has another Jeffrey, so I'm not being any kind of, you know, it's just one of them. Um, so 
yeah, sexual dysfunction is really common. 30 to 50% of the general population will have sexual dysfunction at some stage in their life. And 90% of people who have depression at some stage in their life will have sexual dysfunction. And they work hand in hand. Often people become depressed because they've got problems with their sexual function or their intimate relationships. And other people have problems with their sexual function because of their mental health. So the first thing I always say to people when they see me is that sexual dysfunction isn't going... You know, if, if you've got some issue, like you've had prostate cancer treatment or cancer, breast cancer treatment or just ageing process or whatever's gone on, doesn't, I can't necessarily restore them to their former 20-year-old glory. But the point is, is that it, sex can still be good without everything working the way it did 20 years ago. And surprisingly, I think it's like... Um, Changing the script in your love life is a good way to look at it. So you wouldn't eat the same flavour ice cream every day of the week. So if you are with one person for 30 years and you start off doing it one certain way and then you get into a pretty boring habit where the script is the same all the time, you know, you get into bed, someone touches your left leg, right nipple and off you go. Um, having some sort of sexual dysfunction in one of the couple is actually a really positive thing sometimes because it means they have to mix up the script and try new things. It's not uncommon for me to see couples in their 60s, 70s trying sex toys for the first time, or in the case of erectile dysfunction, couples realising that there's a lot more to sex than just penetrative sex. So I think it's a good thing to try and spin it on its head and look at it from something different. So I know you guys will all know what the causes are, but they are multifactorial. They can be caused from disease, treatment of disease, any medications you take for anything else, um, and relationship consequences. It's pretty hard to have a functioning sex life when you're not getting on. So a lot of our consults start off with people coming in for a physical problem and end up with actually talking about the fact that if he vacuums the floor, that actually really is foreplay for a woman. So it is a difficult conversation to bring up. Um, I actually remember when I was an undergrad doing my bachelor to be a nurse and they made us ask the question about sex when we went through those assessments and thinking this is so ridiculous what's this got to do with the guy who came in with his sore toe and now I'm one of those terrible people telling students that they have to ask all the time so you know this is how most patients feel they really want someone to ask them the question but they're too embarrassed to ask it um, and often I think, not always, but often I think the doctor or the nurse practitioner or whoever their primary health caregiver is, is too embarrassed to bring it up. So this slide, it's a little bit busy, but as you guys all know, erectile dysfunction and other sexual problems are really high, but for the purpose of this, this is a study that was done quite a few years ago now because there actually isn't much research in this area. And if you look at the slide on your left, that is how erectile dysfunction or sexual dysfunction in men goes up as they get older. It's actually still really high. Like one in three men over the age of 40 will suffer with some sort of erectile problems. And when I say that to guys the first time they come in about this problem, they're so relieved. They're like, really? I say, go to the pub with your mates next time and count them and know how many of them have got a problem so you don't feel so bad. Um, if you look at the slide on at the one on the right, notice that the top number is actually 60%. So this is the amount of people who have actually brought it up with their healthcare provider. And it's most of them, except for in the 50 to 59 age bracket, which is only like 59%, most of them are less than 50% will actually ask about it. And if you go across the whole age, only about 29% of people have actually asked their healthcare professional, even when they, and this is of a, of a group of people who do have sexual dysfunction. 
So I was, I've been really interested in this for quite some time. So I sent out a survey a couple of months ago to our email list. Um, we sent out 1,823 emails. Surprisingly, we got 1,184 people actually opened it, which is quite good, I thought. Um, and we, talked, we asked them the question, has your GP ever asked you about how your sexual function is? Interestingly enough, 77% of those people, we got back, now how many people did we get replied? 286 replied actually to the survey. 77% um, of them said their GP had, or their health professional it said, had never asked them the question about their sexual function. And 23% of them said they had. So that in itself, I think, is a little bit sad. Um, would you like them to raise this topic? And out of those same number of people, 96.6% um, of them said they wished that someone had asked them about their sexual function. And in, only one person actually answered and said no. So there was another 20-something um, that actually said their GP had asked them. So, but out of the ones that hadn't been asked, only one of those people said, I don't want them to ask them, I'd die. But everybody else was very happy to be asked and wished they were. Oh, I think I need to... So, have you ever talked? Um, this was some of the comments that we got, and I thought this was really interesting. So, have you ever talked about sexual dysfunction with your GP? So, this is whether or not they actually brought it up, because there was, we asked that question as well, and most of them said no. They just wished that someone would ask them. So, um, one gentleman said, oh, there were women and men in this survey, by the way, um, that he wasn't confident that he could bring it up in discussion. Another guy said that he tried to ask if he had low testosterone levels um, and was told that as they get older, they drop and the conversation was ended. Another person said that they initiated the discussion, it was given a Viagra script and then that was it, end of discussion. They had no idea how to take it or what to do with it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that soon. Uh, another person said that they asked their GP if they would get their sexual function back after they had their prostate removed and they were told not likely. I think that's a really big misconception that stops people from getting their PSA checked. They'd rather not know. So I think just giving them the, the idea is that there's a lot of other things we can do now and that a lot of people do get their sexual function back and we can do workarounds for it if they don't. I think that's really important because we don't want people to not have treatment or not be diagnosed with illnesses because they're worried about the side effects. Um, one person also said that they asked question based on their treatment for their prostate cancer and the effects of sexual function and the GP feel sounded really awkward so they just moved on. Um, if, if not, would you like to have had the, D, the GP discuss it with you? And so, we, as I said before, we had the yes and no's and then we had their comments. There were lots of comments, but I've just picked out some particular ones. Yes, um, because men of my age group are too embarrassed to raise it. Pardon the pun, I thought it was quite funny of him. Um, so, yeah, he would really like to be asked, but he was too embarrassed. Oh, and I have spelt that wrong on my slide, sorry. Um, I would, my erectile dysfunction is closely linked to my mental health, but he just tries to block it out. So this guy just, he went on more about it, and he just basically said that he just tries to pretend it's not happening. He knows that that's part of his depression. He talks about his depression, but he never mentions his sexual problems. Um, this guy I thought was particularly sad. He mentioned that he had erectile dysfunction at age 52 and his GP told him he was too old to be frisky. So um, I'm really hoping that that GP's like 20 so that he realises that 52-year-olds still do it. Um, 
Uh, yes, he would have. The other, this was a woman actually who said that she just wishes the conversation had been raised with her, um, and she understands that they probably wouldn't deal with it. But just to know where to go would have been great. Uh, and the other one was absolutely, as a patient, um, this was a woman as well. She'd like to know if her medications would affect her sexual function. Um, Finally, this person said, yes, it'd be great to have an open conversation with my GP, um, but they do seem to feel squeamish about the subject. And this man had a painful swollen nut, went into his female GP to talk to her about it, and she didn't want to look at his nuts. Um, she eventually did after he asked, and he's now changed GP and said he has another female GP who's absolutely wonderful. So I, I did get some real... Out of the 22 people who said their GP had raised the subject with them, they were all glowing reports about how wonderful their GP was, how open they were, and how great they felt having that chat. Um, we also asked what sort of conversations they wish that, that, that were raised with them. Um, pretty much the same theme. They'd like an open-ended question that just um, raised the subject so they could talk about any problems they had. Um, they'd like to have discussed the general ageing process and what changes over time options to um, improve their sexual function. Again, this couple, this was a husband and wife answered this together, and they said that they'd just be happy to be referred somewhere, but they would have liked to have known it was possible. Um, and information on how to do, deal with ED and possible effectiveness. So what do patients want to know? So this little word bubble here is obviously all the medication groups that could affect sexual function. And so I think that if we're ever prescribing those, and us as nurse practitioners, we prescribe these medications all the time, I think it's important when we tell them you might get dizzy, you might get headaches, you might get whatever, to also mention that one of the possible side effects of this medication might have an effect. You might not be able to have an orgasm, you might not be able to get an erection, you might get dry, whatever the side effect might be for that medication. And that's not to say that I'm thinking you shouldn't be prescribing the medication, but if the patient's aware they're less likely to feel worried about it when it happens and they'll come back and see you again and say, I got that side effect, is there anything I can do? Can I change to another medication or can you add something in that will counteract that problem? So I think if patients know about something, it's much better. I've seen so many people come in that say to me, I really, um, this has happened, I've got erectile dysfunction or I can't have an orgasm anymore and I don't know why and it's causing relationship problems because my partner thinks I'm not into them anymore. And I think that's really sad when I sit down and talk to them and we trace it back to two years ago when the problem started, they started on an antidepressant and they didn't know. And when I've told them that's probably what it is, sometimes they want to change to an antidepressant that doesn't have the same sexual function problem or sometimes they're like, oh, that's okay, now I know I feel better about it, I can explain it to my partner and can you give me something to counteract that effect? So I'm not suggesting that you always have to change the treatment, but just asking them and keeping people informed is really great. Um, this is another um, word cloud of all the issues that affect, that can affect your sexual function, and I, I know you guys already know all of this, but I think sometimes it's a good opportunity to raise the subject. It might seem really out of place just to suddenly say, hey, um, have you got any problems with your, with your sexual function? They might look at you a bit weird, but if you know that your patient has cardiovascular disease, high cholesterol, depression, whatever the case may be, it can be used as a good opportunity to raise the subject in a way that you don't sound like some weird creep. So, um, 
I'm sure most of you know the story of that in um, many years ago they used to put canaries in cages down mine shafts and the reason they did that was so that if the canary dropped dead in the cage, I don't think RSPCA would like this much, but when the canary dropped dead in the cage, they would get all of the mine workers out of the underground mine so because they knew that the gas levels had become toxic. Um, so I try and think of a penis really or any sexual dysfunction as being a bit like the canary down the mine shaft. So if um, someone comes in and they've got ED, then rather than just giving them a PDE5 medication to help with that, often it's a good opportunity to go, hmm, we haven't really looked at your cardiovascular system lately, we haven't done this, we haven't done that, and vice versa. It's a good way to raise the subject about their sexual function by looking into those things. Um, so, yeah, explaining the canary is often a good one. So I think it's really important that patients are given some control. I think everybody feels better about their life when whatever is going on with them, they are given some homework to do for themselves. And there's a lot of things in, that people can do for themselves to improve their overall health and wellbeing and in particular their sexual function. Um, so we always talk about diet, exercise, stopping smoking and drinking less alcohol. Um, men and women who are overweight will, you know, have lower testosterone levels. So, uh, you know, if someone thinks they've got low testosterone, then it's a great way to say well, this is a really good opportunity to get rid of that belly um, and get moving. So I think, you know, I always think that erectile function, particularly for men, seems to be a really good motivator for men to change their unhealthy lifestyle habits. Um, and I also think practicing pleasure. So you can um, explain to patients about the fact that there is other things. Um, other than just penetrative sex, and you don't have to suggest them. I'm not all expecting that you will, but there's a lot of good websites. We've got a lot of information on our website. I know Perth Men's Health has a lot of good information on their website, and there's so much information freely available now on YouTube. There's just a plethora of information, and I think just having a, something where you can send people to to find out more info is really good. Um, Mindset and belief adjustment, you might need to send them to a sexologist or a psychologist for that, but it can certainly help. Um, managing and improving their lifestyle stress and dealing with any relationship issues. My favourite book of all time I recommend to any couples with problems is The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Um, I think it's a great book. It takes a couple of hours to read. There's a quiz at the end and both parts of the couple can do the quiz and then talk to each other about what their love language is. And often it's just a really way to, good way to get people to talk about their relationship in general. And it's not about their sex life at all. It's just about their relationship. But if we can improve people's relationship, we'll often improve their intimate relationships as well. Um, and I think the other thing that we miss is that when people lose function, they often grieve for that. And I think just acknowledging that there is a grief process with any loss of any function of any part of our body, and then if we need to, referring them to a psychologist or a counsellor for that is really helpful. Um, and also making sure that the patient's aware of the things they're not in control of. So there are things that happen that they're not in control of, um, and we can help them work their way around that. So as I was saying before, people over the age of 50 definitely still have sex. Um, 
yesterday I was working at Wexford in Perth Urology and I had this lovely 90-year-old man come in that one of the guys had referred to me on his cane and he came in and he was, I said, oh, so what can I do for you today? And he said, I fell over a year ago and broke my back and I haven't been able to get an erection ever since. I've been in um, rehabilitation hospital for 10 months and I got out two months ago and everything else is working. I can walk again, I can do everything, but I can't get my penis to work. Um, and I was like, okay, but we'll see what we can do to help. And he said this was really distressing for him. He um, was on to his third wife and the one he had at the moment he'd been married to for 28 years. She was the best, he told me, out of all three. Um, and up until he fell over and broke his back, they were still having sex three times a week. And she's 89. Um, so I just think it's a really good example. I was said to him, wow, you're like a pin-up boy. I couldn't come at a better time. I'm going to talk about you tomorrow. Um, so he was absolutely gorgeous. I taught him how to do injections for um, erectile erections and he did his first one and he left with a half-mast on the way out. The door asked me if I'd just have a squeeze and tell him what I thought and I was like, no, you better take that home to your wife so she can do that. Um, but he's a very, very happy man. I just think he's a very good example of, and not an uncommon example, that people can still have a healthy sex life as they get older. Um, I always hear men tell me, oh, there's no point in me worrying about my sexual function. Women can't have an orgasm after menopause, so make sure you tell them that that is still possible. Um, so, I just wanted to give you some suggestions, really, on how to raise the subject. I talked about using whatever their diagnosis of their health issue is to raise the issue. I always have Jeffrey sitting on my desk. It's always a very good opener. It might look weird in general practice, though, when people come in and you have a big penis sitting on your desk. Um, but I know when I was working in the Fremantle General Practice Clinic that I worked in for the last five years, I just had a sign on the wall, like, are you worried about your sexual function? Please just ask. And often people would be sitting there talking to me about whatever else their problem was and you'd see them read it behind you when they were talking and then they'd ask just, just because they, could, they knew that you were open to the question. So you don't, if you don't feel comfortable actually asking them, then maybe that's a good way to raise the conversation. The other thing is I think that if you feel awkward yourself about asking the question, then um, just fake it until you make it. This is the only time I ever tell people to fake it in my line of work. Um, but definitely as a health professional, pretend that you're comfortable asking the question because if you do it enough times, you'll get used to it. So this is just a very small list of things many people don't know. Um, following prostate um, biopsy, the ejaculate will often contain a lot of blood. Please, in general practice, tell your patients that. The amount of men I see that come in and go, they said there might be a bit, but I had no idea how bad it was. Like, men are often shocked and really distressed about how much blood there is in their ejaculate after their biopsy, so please tell them that. Um, a man can have an orgasm without an erection. That's very shocking to most couples that I see. They just can't believe that it's possible, so please tell them it is. Um, Post-prostate operations, your orgasm is dry. Well, it's dry from the point of view that you don't have any ejaculate, but they often will have urine come out. Um, I saw a guy a few weeks ago, been on his first date after his prostate operation. He was very lucky, actually, that he got back, um, he's a single guy in his 50s, he got his erections back really quickly, um, but he had an orgasm with this woman for the first time and urine went everywhere and he was absolutely mortified. So please tell them that might happen and to keep an eye out for it. Um, often uh, men will say that their orgasm after their prostate removal is more intense than it's ever been and um, if you want to listen to our podcast you'll hear guys over and over again tell you that. We've even got one episode called Awesome Orgasms. It's like 
the silver lining of having your prostate out. Um, outer course, there, it is such a thing. It's not all about penises and penetration. So we can talk to patients about that. Um, and then often when a man ejaculates normally, a little bit of wee is mixed in and just to reassure the partner that that's normal and it's been there a lot of the time of their, that they've been having sex and so not to stress about it and that urine is sterile. Um, I'm nearly finished. Am I running out of time? No. Um, so what is the Penis Project? Um, myself and a colleague of mine who's a physiotherapist that works in men's health started this um, 18 months ago, nearly, maybe two years in this September. Um, I think we're up to episode 90 now. The reason we started it was because we just wanted to be able to say to a patient when they told us a problem, I've got this issue, do you know anyone else that's been through it? And I used to always like bring up a patient who'd had the same problem and ask if they would call that person to reassure them. Um, and then I felt like I was always calling on the same patient to be like an advocate. So we started off recording patients um, about their story, any penis problem that they had at all. And then um, so people could listen and listen to other people's stories. The people we interview usually want to use a fake name. So if you look at the names, they're crazy things like Rod Popcorn and Awesome Orgasms. Yeah, and they give us a, any name that starts with a P. Some people are brave enough to use their own name. But I find because you can't see the person and they don't use their real name, often they're more than happy to talk. And most of the couples that we've had, we have men, women, um, on there, they, most of them are very open, most of them are very humorous because no one recognises them, so they're quite happy to be very, very open about what's going on. So it's, a, it's available on Apple and Spotify and everywhere. Um, we're shocked because we thought it would just be our patients and now we have over 65,000 subscribers and they're worldwide. So we've got people in Israel and Canada and America and New Zealand and um, we've actually just been asked to present at a urology conference in New Zealand next year and it's because some urologists there were listening to the Penis Project. So I encourage you to listen. Um, we also have at Restorative Sexual Health an online penile rehabilitation program and we're soon to have one about erectile dysfunction. So they'll still need to see their GP or their primary caregiver to prescribe their medication. But if people want to, if they live in rural and remote areas where they don't have access to specialists or where um, they're just too embarrassed or too busy to go and talk to someone, they can learn everything online. It's all videos. It's basically the equivalent of having 10 consults with me and they, I'm videoing and got little videos and movies and things. And I'm not a very good actress, but the information's there. Um, and if you'd like more information about us and what we do, we have website, um, the podcast has got its own website as well. I've got a YouTube channel where I've got lots of information for patients. It's not really directed any of this at health professionals. What my aim is, I really want to make what goes on in medicine and what happens in the research translatable so real people can understand. And so that's who it's directed at. Um, and we also have Instagram and what else do we have? Facebook. And that's it. Thank you. Oh, no, don't go yet. Oh. There we go, Melissa. Not that one? This one. I do drink wine. This one's better. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Not my mum. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Sonny. I'm going to tell you about a boy who lives inside me. All of my life
Hi, I'm Melissa and I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week. Just a reminder, if you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer, I've built a penile rehabilitation program just for you. It's an online program packed with information, exercises and advice, along with proven strategies that will get your penis back in working order as quickly as possible in about 15 minutes a day. If you like the sound of that, then please head over to penilerehabilitationprogram.com and you can start straight away. Or there's a link from the RS Health website. We would also love you to review and subscribe and share this podcast so we can help more men. Links to Instagram and Facebook are in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. So spread the word that help is available. All the best for now. Bye. I've got a boy of my own now. It fills me with pride. To see him growing so fast into a man. His victories become mine. I cry his tears. His love.